Chapter Twenty of Flower of the North. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Flower of the North by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Twenty. For many minutes, Philip did not move or look from the bit of damp fabric which he held between his fingers. His heart was chilled. He felt sick. Each moment added to the emotion which was growing in him, an emotion which was a composite of disgust and of anguish. Jeanne! Thorpe! An eternity of difference seemed to lie between those two. Jeanne, with her tender beauty, her sweet life, her idyllic dreams, and Thorpe, the gang-driver. In his own soul he had made a shrine for Jeanne, and from his knees he had looked up at her, filled with the knowledge of his own unworthiness. He had worshipped her as Dante might have worshipped Beatrice. To him she was the culmination of all that was sweet and lovable in woman, transcendentally above him. And from this love, this worship of his, she had gone that very night to Thorpe, the gangman. He shivered. Going to the stove, he thrust in a handful of paper, dropped the handkerchief in with it, and set the whole on fire. A few moments later, the door opened, and MacDougall came in. He was followed by the two swarthy-faced St. Pierre's, the camp huntsmen. Philip shook hands with them, and they passed after the engineer through a narrow door leading into a room which was known as the camp office. Cassidy, Henshaw, and the others followed within the next ten minutes. There was not a man among them whose eyes faltered when Philip put up his proposition to them. As briefly as possible, he told them a part of what he had previously revealed to MacDougall, and frankly conceded that the preservation of property and life in the camp depended almost entirely upon them. "'You're not the sort of men to demand pay in a pinch like this,' he finished. And that's just the reason I've confidence enough in you to ask for your support. There are fifty men in camp who we could hire to fight, but I don't want hired fighters. I don't want men who will run at the crack of a few rifles, but men who are willing to die with their boots on. I won't offer you money for this, because I know you too well. But from this hour on, you're going to be a part of the Great Northern Fish and Development Company, and as soon as the certificates can be signed, I'm going to turn over a hundred shares of stock to each of you. Remember that this isn't pay. It's simply a selfish scheme of mine to make you a part of the company. There are eight of us. Give us each an automatic, and I'll wager that there isn't a combination in this neck of the wood strong enough to do us up. In the pale light of the two oil lamps, the men's faces glowed with enthusiasm. Cassidy was the first to grip Philip's hand in a pledge of fealty. "'When hell freezes over, we're licked,' he said. "'Where's me automatic?' MacDougall brought in the guns and ammunition. "'In the morning we will begin the erection of a new building close to this one,' said Philip. "'There is no reason for the building,' but that will give me an excuse for keeping you men together on one job, within fifty feet of your guns, 
which we can keep in this room. Only four men need work at a shift, and I'll put Cassidy in charge of the operations, if that is satisfactory to the others. We'll have a couple of new bunks put in here so that four men can stay with MacDougall and me every night. The other four, who are not on the working shift, can hunt not far from the camp and keep their eyes peeled. Does that look good? Can't be beat, said Henshaw, throwing open the breech of his gun. Shall we load? Yes. The room became ominous with the metallic click of loaded cartridge clips and the hard snap of released chambers. Five minutes later, Philip stood alone with MacDougall. The loaded rifles, each with a filled cartridge belt hanging over the muzzle, were arranged in a row along one of the walls. "'I'll stake everything I've got on those men,' he exclaimed. "'Mac, did it ever strike you that when you want real men, you ought to come north for them? Every one of those fellows is a northerner, except Cassidy, and he's a fighter by birth. They'll die before they go back in their word.' MacDougall rubbed his hands and laughed softly. "'What next, Phil?' "'We must send the swiftest man you've got in camp after Billinger and get word to the other parties you sent out as quickly as we can. "'They'll probably get in too late. "'Billinger may arrive in time. "'He's been gone a week. "'It's doubtful if we can get him back within three, said MacDougall. "'I'll send St. Pierre's cousin.' that young crow-feather, after him as soon as he can get a pack ready. You'd better go to bed, Phil. You look like a dead man. Philip was not sure that he could sleep, notwithstanding the physical strain he had been under during the past twenty-four hours. He was filled with a nervous desire for continued action. Only action kept him from thinking of Jeanne and Thorpe. After MacDougall had gone to stir up young crow-feather, he undressed and stretched out in his bunk, hoping that the Scotchman would soon return. Not until he closed his eyes did he realize how tired he was. MacDougall came in an hour later, and Philip was asleep. It was nine o'clock when he awoke. He went to the cook's shanty, ate a hot breakfast of griddle cakes and bacon, drank a pint of strong coffee, and hunted up MacDougall. Sandy was just coming from Thorpe's house. "'He's a queer guinea, that Thorpe,' said the engineer, after their first greeting. "'He doesn't pretend to do a pound's work. Notice his hands when you see him again, Phil. They look as though he'd been drumming a piano all his life. But love a mighty how he does make the others work. You want to go over and see his gang throw dirt.' "'That's where I'm going,' said Philip. Is Thorpe at home? Just leaving. There he is now. At MacDougall's whistle, Thorpe turned and waited for Philip. Going over? he asked pleasantly when Philip came up. Yes, I want to see how your men work without a leader, replied Philip. He paused for a moment to light his pipe and pointed to a group of men down on the lake shore. See that gang? he asked. They're building a scow. Take away their foreman, and they wouldn't be worth their grub. They're men we brought up from Winnipeg. Thorpe was rolling a cigarette. 
Under his arm he held a pair of light gloves. "'Mine are different,' he laughed quietly. "'I know that,' rejoined Philip, watching the skill of his long white fingers. "'That's why I want to see them in action, when you're away.' My policy is to know to a cubic foot what a certain number of men are capable of doing in a certain time, explained Thorpe, as they walked toward the plain. My next move is to secure the men who will achieve the result, whether I am present or not. That done, my work is done. Simple, isn't it? There was something likable about Thorpe. Even in his present mood Philip could not but concede that. He was surprised in Thorpe, in more ways than one. His voice was low and filled with a certain companionable quality that gave one confidence in him immediately. He was apparently a man of education and of some little culture, in spite of his vocation, which usually possesses a vocabulary of its own as hard as rock. But Philip's greatest surprise came when he regarded Thorpe's personal appearance. He judged that he was past forty, perhaps forty-five, and the thought made him shudder inwardly. He was twice, almost three times as old as Jean. And yet there was about him something irresistibly attractive, a fascination which had its influence upon Philip himself. His nails dug into the flesh of his hands when he thought of this man and Jean. Thorpe's gang was hard at work when they came to the end of the rock bed. Scarcely a man seemed to take notice when he appeared. There was one exception, a wiry, red-faced little man who raised a hand to his cap when he saw the foreman. "'That's the sub-foreman,' explained Thorpe. "'He answers to me.' The little man had given a signal, and Thorpe added, "'Excuse me for a moment. He's got something on his mind.' He drew a few steps aside, and Philip walked along the line of laboring men. He grinned and nodded to them, one after another. MacDougall was right. They were the toughest lot of men he had ever seen in one gang. Loud voices turned him about, and he saw that Thorpe and the sub-foreman had approached a huge, heavy-shouldered man with whom they seemed to be in serious altercation. Two or three of the workmen had drawn near, and Thorpe's voice rang out clear and vibrant. "'You'll do that, Blake, or you'll shoulder your kit back home. And what goes with you goes with your click. I know your kind, and you can't worry me. Take that pick and dig, or hike. There's no two ways about it.' Philip could not hear what the big man said, but suddenly Thorpe's fist shot out and struck him fairly on the jaw. In another instant, Thorpe had jumped back and was facing half a dozen angry, threatening men. He had drawn a revolver, and his white teeth gleamed in a cool and menacing smile. "'Think it over, boys,' he said quietly. "'And if you're not satisfied, come in and draw your pay this noon. We'll furnish you with outfits and plenty of grub if you don't like the work up here.' I don't care to hold men like you on your contracts. He came to meet Philip as though nothing unusual had happened. That will delay the completion of our work for a week at least, he said as he thrust his revolver into a holster hidden under his coat. 
I've been expecting trouble with Blake and four or five of his pals for some time. I'm glad it's over. Blake threatens a strike unless I give him a sub-foremanship and increase the men's wages from six to ten dollars a day. Think of it. A strike. Up here. It would be the beginning of history, wouldn't it? He laughed softly, and Philip laughed from sheer admiration of the man's courage. "'You think they'll go?' he asked anxiously. "'I'm sure of it,' replied Thorpe. "'It's the best thing that can happen.' An hour later Philip was back in camp. He did not see Thorpe again until after dinner, and then the gang foreman hunted him up. His face wore a worried look. "'It's a little worse than I expected,' he said. "'Blake and eight others came in for their pay and outfits this noon. "'I didn't think that more than three or four would have the nerve to quit.' "'I'll furnish you with men to take their places,' said Philip. "'There's the hitch,' replied Thorpe, rolling a cigarette. "'I want my men to work by themselves. "'Put half a dozen of your amateur roadmen among them, "'and it'll mean twenty percent less work done, and perhaps trouble.' They're a tough lot. I concede that. I've thought of a way to offset the loss of Blake and the others. We can set a gang of your men at work over at Gray Beaver Lake, and they can build up to meet us. Philip saw MacDougall soon after his short talk with Thorpe. The engineer did not disguise his pleasure at the turn which affairs had taken. I'm glad they're going, he declared. If there's to be trouble, I'll feel easier with that bunch out of camp. I'd give my next month's salary if Thorpe would take his whole outfit back where they came from. They're doing business with the roadbed, all right, but I don't like the idea of having them around when there are throats to be cut, one side or t'other. Philip did not see Thorpe again that day. He selected his men for the gray beaver work, and in the afternoon, dispatched a messenger over the Fort Churchill route to meet Brokaw. He was confident that Brokaw and his daughter would show up during the next few days, but at the same time he instructed the messenger to go to Churchill if he should not meet them on the way. Other men he sent to recall the prospecting parties outfitted by MacDougall. Early in the evening the St. Pierre's, Lecoe, and Henshaw joined him for a few minutes in the office. During the day, the four had done scout work five miles on all sides of the camp. Lecoe had shot a moose three miles to the south and had hung up the meat. One of the St. Pierre's saw Blake and his gang on the way to the Churchill. Beyond these two incidents, they brought in no news. A little later, MacDougall brought in two other men whom he could trust and armed them with muzzle loaders. They were the two last guns in the camp. With ten men constantly prepared for attack, Philip began to feel that he had the situation well in hand. It would be practically impossible for his enemies to surprise the camp, and after their first day's scout duty, the men on the trail would always be within sound of rifle shots, even if they did not discover the advance of an attacking force in time to beat them to camp. In the event of one making such a discovery, he was to signal the others by a series of shots, 
such as one might fire at a running moose. Philip found it almost impossible to fight back his thoughts of Jeanne. During the two or three days that followed the departure of Blake, he did not allow himself an hour's rest from early dawn until late at night. Each night he went to bed exhausted with the hope that sleep would bury his grief. The struggle wore upon him, and the faithful MacDougall began to note the change in his comrade's face. The fourth day Thorpe disappeared and did not show up again until the following morning. Every hour of his absence was like the stab of a knife in Philip's heart, for he knew that the gang foreman had gone to see Jeanne. Three days later the visit was repeated, and that night MacDougall found Philip in a fever. "'You're overdoing,' he told him. "'You're not in bed five hours out of the twenty-four. "'Cut it out, or you'll be in the hospital "'instead of in the fighting line "'when the big show comes to town.' Days of mental agony and of physical pain followed. Neither Philip nor MacDougall could understand the mysterious lack of developments. They had expected attack before this, and yet ceaseless scout work brought in no evidence of an approaching crisis. Neither could they understand the growing disaffection among Thorpe's men. The numerical strength of the gang dwindled from nineteen down to fifteen, from fifteen to twelve. At last Thorpe voluntarily asked Philip to cut his salary in two, because he could not hold his men. On that same day, the little sub-foreman and two others left him, leaving only nine men at work. The delay in Brokaw's arrival was another puzzle to Philip. Two weeks passed, and in that time Thorpe left camp three times. On the fifteenth day, the Fort Churchill messenger returned. He was astounded when he found that Brokaw was not in camp, and brought amazing news. Brokaw and his daughter had departed from Fort Churchill two days after Pierre had followed Jeanne and Philip. They had gone in two canoes up the Churchill. He had seen no signs of them anywhere along the route. No sooner had he received the news than Philip sent the messenger after MacDougall. The Scotchman's red face stared at him blankly when he told him what had happened. "'That's their first move in the real fight,' said Philip, with a hard ring in his voice. "'They've got Brokaw. Keep your men close from this hour on, Sandy. Hereafter let five of them sleep in our bunks during the day and keep them awake during the night.' Five days passed without a sign of an enemy. About eight o'clock on the night of the sixth, MacDougall came into the office where Philip was alone. The young Scotchman's usually florid face was white. He dropped a curse as he grasped the hand of a chair with both hands. It was the third or fourth time that Philip had heard MacDougall swear. "'Damn that Thorpe!' he cried in a low voice. "'What's up?' asked Philip, his muscles tightening. MacDougall viciously beat the ash from the bowl of his pipe. "'I didn't want to worry you about Thorpe, so I've kept quiet about some things,' he growled. "'Thorpe brought up a load of whiskey with him. 
I knew it was against the law you've set down for this camp, but I figured you were having trouble enough without getting you into a mix-up with him, so I didn't say anything. But this other is damnable. Twice he's had a woman sneak in to visit him. She's there again tonight. A choking, gripping sensation rose in Philip's throat. MacDougall was not looking and did not see the convulsive twitching of the other's face or the terrible light that shot for an instant into his eyes. A woman! Mac! A young woman, said MacDougall with emphasis. I don't know who she is, but I do know that she hasn't a right there or she wouldn't sneak in like a thief. I'm going to be blunt, damned blunt. I think she's one of the other men's wives. There are half a dozen in camp. Haven't you ever looked to see if you could recognize her? Haven't had the chance, said MacDougall. She's been wrapped up both times, and as it was none of my business, I didn't lay in wait. But now it's up to you. Philip rose slowly. He felt cold. He put on his coat and cap and buckled on his revolver. His face was deadly white when he turned to MacDougall. "'She is over there tonight?' "'Sneaked in not half an hour ago. I saw her come out of the edge of the spruce.' "'From the trail that leads out over the plain?' "'Yes.' Philip walked to the door. "'I'm going over to call on Thorpe,' he said quietly. I may not be back for some time, Sandy. In the deep shadows outside he stood gazing at the light in Thorpe's cabin. Then he walked slowly toward the spruce. He did not go to the door, but leaned with his back against the building, near one of the windows. The first shuddering sickness had gone from him. His temples throbbed. At the sound of a voice inside, which was Thorpe's, the chill in his blood turned to fire. The terrible fear that had fallen upon him at MacDougall's words held him motionless, and his brain worked upon but one idea, one determination. If it was Jeanne who came in this way, he would kill Thorpe. If it was another woman, he would give Thorpe that night to get out of the country. He waited. He heard the gangmen's voice frequently, once in a loud, half-mocking laugh. Twice he heard a lower voice, a woman's. For an hour he watched. He walked back and forth in the gloom of the spruce and waited another hour. Then the light went out and he slipped back to the corner of the cabin. After a moment the door opened and a hooded figure came out and walked rapidly toward the trail that buried itself amid the spruce. Philip ran around the cabin and followed. There was a little open beyond the first fringe of spruce, and in this he ran up silently from behind and overtook the one he was pursuing. As his hand fell upon her arm, the woman turned upon him with a frightened cry. Philip's hand dropped. He took a step back. "'My God! Jeanne, it is you!' 
His voice was husky, like a choking man's. For an instant, Jeanne's white, terrified face met his own. And then, without a word to him, she fled swiftly down the trail. Philip made no effort to follow. For two or three minutes he stood like a man turned suddenly into hewn rock, staring with unseeing eyes into the gloom where Jeanne had disappeared. Then he walked back to the edge of the spruce. There he drew his revolver and cocked it. The starlight revealed a madness in his face as he approached Thorpe's cabin. He was smiling, but it was such a smile as presages death, a smile as implacable as fate itself. End of chapter 20 Recording by Roger Moline